Hello, and welcome to this summertime episode of Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. Because it's summer, and I'm involved in one of my favorite hobbies, gardening, I thought I'd put together some episodes about the plants we like to grow and enjoy. So settle into that chair onto the patio, get a cool drink, and let's talk about plants. I'll begin with this question. Have you ever wondered where the food you eat comes from? I don't mean what store or what farm or even what country that tomato or grape or pomegranate sitting on your counter was grown in. What I mean is where did people first start eating that food? Where did people find enough differences among wild plants of a species to decide that some had traits that made their seeds worth keeping for planting next year? Or maybe moving pollen from the flowers of one plant with traits that you have like to the flowers of another plant with traits you like to make offspring that hopefully combine those best traits of the parents and those offspring seeds. And the seeds from those plants are where we eventually got the different foods that we find on our plates now. But think about this. Even the different crops we grow are not all the same. Take apples, for example. There are many different kinds of apples, Red Delicious, Wine Sap, and all of the others. Each has a slightly different set of traits because at some point, a farmer said, I like how this apple tastes. I want more like this one. Or maybe it was that some plants were more resistant to a particular disease, so their offspring survived to make the next generation. This is something that ancient farmers did, artificially selecting traits to pass on over time in their crops. And we've been building on that process ever since. So how did this happen? Where did it all start? Where did farmers first grow corn or wheat or any of our crops? And how did they grow them? And why does the variety of plant that a particular farmer grows in one place differ from what a farmer grows somewhere else? And why would that even be important? Well, those are the questions that drove the scientific curiosity of Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov, a botanist who investigated the origins of agriculture and attempted to rid his homeland and the world of hunger. And those are the questions that we're going to explore in this episode of Biota as we investigate the career of Academician Vavilov, a pioneering Russian geneticist and the greatest plant hunter that ever existed. Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov's story starts on November 25, 1887. He was the second oldest of the seven children born to Ivan Ilyich and Alexandra Mikhailova Vavilov. He was one of their four children that survived to adulthood. Vavilov's father was a textile merchant who worked his way from rural peasant to the merchant class in Presnya, what we would think of now as a suburb of Moscow. Ivan Ilyich was able to support the education of Vavilov's older sister to become a physician and his younger sister a microbiologist. His younger brother Sergei became a renowned physicist and eventually the leader of the USSR Academy of Sciences for many years. Nikolai Vavilov's abilities as a scientist led him to enroll at the academically rigorous Petrovska Agricultural Academy, which was more commonly referred to as the Petrovka, in 1907. There, Vavilov excelled in his studies of agriculture with the goal of using scientific approaches, particularly the discoveries in this emerging field called genetics. He wanted to improve agriculture for the purpose of, as he wrote in his diary, quote, the betterment of humankind, end quote. Russian agricultural advances were beginning to fall behind the United States and other countries in Europe whose farmers were using new industrial farm machinery, and the scientists were using this new tool called genetics to improve the crops. Disease, drought, and cold weren't the only challenges that Russian farmers faced. 
what crops could be grown could also be sold by the czar or other landowners to foreign countries who could outbid the poor farmers. Famine and hunger were common parts of Russian life in many regions of the vast country. Studying at the Petrovka, Vavilov realized that genetics and selective breeding were the only way to improve crops and end hunger. Let's take a quick time out here to put the scientific world of Vavilov into context. When Vavilov began at the Petrovka in 1907, the work of Gregor Mendel that explained the principles of inheritance had largely been ignored until 1900, when scientists named De Vries and Korins rediscovered Mendel's work. This was just a few years before Vavilov entered the Petrovka. At that time, biologists didn't know how things like genes worked or that chromosomes were actually the particles behind inheritance that Mendel had been speaking of. But scientists such as William Bateson, Thomas Hunt Morgan, and others were working out the specifics of how chromosomes might be playing a role in inheritance. Still, other scientists were skeptical and believed that the cytoplasm or other parts of the cell were actually the basis of inheritance. And even other biologists thought that the environment was the driver of traits in an organism and not these so-called genes. These arguments among scientists went beyond just genetics. Although Darwin's work had been widely accepted by many scientists, there was still lingering support for Lamarck's idea that acquired characteristics of the parents could somehow be passed on to their offspring. For example, suppose two plants became acclimated to cold temperatures because of the conditions where they grew. Lamarckian inheritance of acquired traits would predict that their seeds would produce plants with an increased tolerance to cold because the parents had passed on that acquired trait. They thought that the parental environment forced specific changes in the offspring they produced. Although Darwin's theory was much better than Lamarck's and was actually supported by data, something that Lamarck's theory lacked, Darwin had no known mechanism of inheritance to support this theory. Scientists wouldn't make the connections between Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection and Mendel's laws of genetics until the 1940s in what's now known as the modern synthesis. They noticed that Mendel's discoveries gave a specific mechanism to support Darwin's theory. However, in Soviet science, this idea was not widely accepted. When Vavilov was a young scientist, these disputes over whether genetics is real or not, or if Lamarckian evolution can even occur, might seem silly to us now. But in the early 20th century, these were questions that were at the forefront of scientific thought and questions. And, as will become more evident later in this story, these topics are not just academic banter. For some, they had serious, life-altering consequences. All right, let's turn our attention back to Vavilov. He excelled in his studies of agriculture and plants at the Petrovka. He graduated in 1911, which led to an internship at the Bureau of Applied Botany in St. Petersburg that was essentially the beginning of his graduate education. This job gave Vavilov the opportunity to travel to England, France, and other countries in Europe where he continued his education. He studied with many of the researchers who were at the cutting edge of agricultural and genetics research at that time. He even had the opportunity to sit and study Darwin's personal notebooks and documents for clues to plants he should be looking for. Darwin was one of Vavilov's scientific heroes, and now he was holding his books and reading his handwritten notes written in the margins. But most importantly, Vavilov developed a lifelong friendship with his mentor, William Bateson, a biology professor at Cambridge. Bateson coined the terms gene and genetics to describe this new scientific field that just fascinated Vavilov. 
Bateson would have a tremendous influence on Vavilov's life by shaping many of his ideas about plants, variation, selective breeding, and evolution. The outbreak of World War I in 1914 brought a temporary end to Vavilov's international travels. An injury from a laboratory experiment limited his vision in one eye and kept him out of the Russian army, but his brother Sergei was drafted. Nikolai returned to Russia at the start of the war and turned his attention to agricultural research in his vast homeland. At one point, the government sent him to Turkmenistan to investigate a problem caused by the grain soldiers were eating. Vavilov knew it was likely caused by a toxic wild ryegrass that occasionally got mixed in with wheat, but he used this as a way to arrange a side trek through the war zone into the mountainous Pamirs region. Vavilov had an idea. He wanted to find genes to breed into wheat varieties to help make them more drought tolerant. He had hypothesized that in the Pamirs, where it was dry and wheat had been grown for centuries, he might find plants with those traits. And he was right. Vavilov collected thousands of seeds from the different varieties of wheat and other crops that he found being grown by farmers in these isolated mountain villages, and he took his samples back to the research stations and began his experiments. Vavilov noticed how each village grew slightly different varieties that had been bred by generations of farmers to adapt their crops to the local conditions. This expedition started Vavilov thinking about why that would be and if it was a pattern he could observe in other species in other places. And that's where Vavilov began to develop this incredible idea of what would be his most unbelievable accomplishment. Vavilov's idea was to collect seeds and build the world's greatest seed bank. A seed bank isn't just a collection of a few seeds from here and there. It's millions of seeds from thousands of varieties of crop species, plus tubers, rhizomes, or any other piece used in cultivation. It's a collection of genetic variation for crop species. A seed bank is also a living collection. While seeds from some species can be stored for long periods of time under the appropriate conditions and still retain their viability, other seeds have to be replanted and grown up each year to make new seeds for each generation to keep them viable over time. Vavilov wanted to have a collection of all the available genetic variation of all the agriculturally important crop species so that it could be stored and used in breeding experiments and improve those crops. The size and scale of this collection would not just serve the starving people of Russia, but also establish Russian agricultural and genetics as world leaders. This was the first time anyone had considered saving seeds beyond just keeping them for planting the next year. Vavilov had an incredible vision for the future of genetics and agriculture. Vavilov returned from his expedition to the Pamirs with thousands of seeds. In 1917, the talented 30-year-old Dr. Vavilov accepted a position on the agronomy faculty at the prestigious University of Saratov. Vavilov began an unbelievably active career that took him around the globe. He led 115 expeditions and visited 65 countries. His fieldwork reads like something from an adventure novel. On his journeys, Vavilov encountered bandits, soldiers, dignitaries, scientists, and tribal leaders. Word spread in villages about the Russian botanist who collected seeds. He entered hostile war zones and was detained more than once. He walked through forests of wild apple trees, scrambled across mountain trails where his guides would turn back. He even lost specimens on ships that were sunk by German U-boats. And through it all, he was constantly collecting seeds and marveling at the botanical diversity of Earth. 
Vavilov was described as having incredible efficiency, energy, and enthusiasm. It's not surprising that he was frequently heard saying, quote, time is short and there's so much to do, one must hurry, end quote. It's difficult to give an exact count for the number of specimens that Vavilov collected for the seed bank, but estimates place the number of specimens that he collected at around 50,000 different varieties of crops with over 250,000 plant samples. He and his team had produced the largest collection of crop genetic diversity on Earth. Vavilov's star continued to rise after he started working at Saratov, but it was happening against the backdrop of the Russian Revolution. The Tsar Nicholas had abdicated his throne and Lenin had assumed power after the Bolshevik Revolution. Although breaking the oppressive class system was part of the revolution, Lenin realized that trained scientists, regardless of class, were essential to solving the challenges every aspect of Soviet science faced, especially agriculture. Lenin and the Soviet scientific establishment recognized Vavilov's skills and appointed him director of the Bureau of Applied Botany in 1921, and then he became the director of the Department of Applied Botany and New Crops, and eventually he headed the All-Union Institute of Plant Industry. He held these positions until 1940. This allowed Vavilov to establish research institutes and stations throughout the Soviet Union. He traveled around the world to visit with agronomists, geneticists, plant breeders, evolutionary biologists, and occasionally friends and family members who were living as expatriates that had left Russia after the revolution. In every country Vavilov visited, he collected seeds, roots, tubers, fruits, cuttings from every possible agricultural site that he visited. He was thrilled to be in the field wearing his characteristic gray suit, fedora, and his ever-present camera. One of my favorite pictures of Vavilov shows him in Mexico smiling with his arm around stalks of corn and its ancestor, Teosinte, and he was posing in the same way that you would pose for a picture with a friend that you haven't seen in years. Vavilov was like me and so many other botanists. We simply love being with our plants. Vavilov's incredible efforts resulted in establishing the largest seed bank in the world. He had collected seeds from almost every crop where it was originally grown. His work was driven by two great scientific ideas he developed, Vavilov's law of homologous series and his centers of origins theory. Let's briefly consider both of them. I'll start with the law of homologous series. A homology, or homologous structure, is something that is found in one or more species and it's made of exactly the same parts, but the parts have been modified by evolution to have slightly different structures and functions. For example, the forelimbs of mammals like a dog, human, whale, or dolphin look very different from one another and they function very differently too, but they are made up of the exact same bones. The bone's development is directed by exactly the same genes, but they're modified to express in different ways. This is something that we use to show that these organisms share an evolutionary history. It's the same thing with flowers. They look very different from one another, and they are adapted to attract different pollinators and produce different kinds of fruit, but they are all made of the exact same homologous parts. Now, just for contrast, analogous structures, that's something like a butterfly wing and a bird wing. They have similar functions, but they're made of completely different parts. Vavilov's law of homologous series takes the idea of a homology and states that if you find a particular desirable trait in one species, let's say rye, you should expect to find a similar trait in another related grass species that's similar to it, let's say barley. 
Vavilov reasoned that since traits in related species are controlled by similar genes, finding a mutation in one species told you what to look for in another species, because a mutation in their homologous genes, or genotype, should produce a similar change in their observable traits, something we call the phenotype. This was a critical realization because it gave plant hunters like Vavilov something specific to look for in the tiny villages instead of just randomly walking around looking at the plants. Let me give another example. Suppose a botanist notices a particular set of traits, such as the presence or absence of bristles around the grass grain in varieties of a grain species like barley. And suppose they also notice that plants that lack bristles, a trait that's very easy to see, they also produced better flower from their grains, a trait that's much harder to notice in a growing plant. Plant hunters like Vavilov can now look for plants without the bristles in different species that are related to barley or rye or wheat to see if they also produce better flower. By looking for these genetically linked traits, breeders could then quickly identify the plants they wanted to cross and then improve them. We now know that traits can be controlled by multiple genes and, and different mutations in different genes can often produce similar phenotypes. But Vavilov's idea was fundamentally right and it's considered by some to be one of the four fundamental laws of genetics. Vavilov's law explaining that homology is due to shared genetics remains as an early statement of the reason why we find homologous features among related species. Vavilov's second big idea builds on the law of homologous series. Vavilov's center of origin theory describes how different crops were domesticated from wild species in specific geographic locations. Because this is where a crop originated, Vavilov reasoned that this is where you should also find the greatest amount of genetic variation and phenotypic variation for that species. For example, Vavilov showed that the Mexico center of origin for corn is where the original cultivation of that species occurred, where its wild ancestors grow, and where farmers still grow these ancient original varieties of this crop. For the gardeners out there, you can think about this as Vavilov collecting the ultimate heirloom species. Vavilov's centers of origin are where he went to collect seeds containing the rich genetic heritage of our crops. Vavilov found that the small, isolated villages in the mountains were often rich in unique genetic variation for all crop species, specifically because of their high degree of isolation from one another and their unique environments. There have been modifications to his theory since he developed them, but he was the first to fully advance these fundamental ideas in genetics, botany, and evolution that we still use to guide agriculture and conservation biology today. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Okay. Back to our story. Vavilov's work had brought him notoriety and recognition not only in the Soviet Union, but internationally. Organizations recognized him, professional societies appointed him to leadership positions, he was invited to speak at international conferences advancing the success of Soviet science. Vavilov had begun to achieve what he always wanted, the scientific and genetic resources to change Soviet agriculture and defeat famine forever. Vavilov's influence in the world of genetics led him to arranging for the 7th Annual International Congress of Genetics to be held in Moscow in 1937. The International Congress leadership and the Communist Party had come to an agreement to do this in 1935 and allow the meeting to be held in Moscow with Vavilov as the chairman of the scientific gathering. However, the Communist Party changed their mind in 1937 and at the last minute canceled the event that would have brought scientists from around the globe to Moscow. 
When the scientific gathering was eventually rescheduled and held in Edinburgh in 1939, Vavilov was not allowed to leave the USSR to attend. In a show of support for their missing colleague and friend, the conference organizers placed an empty chair on the stage during the conference to mark Vavilov's absence. Unfortunately, this is the time in our story when I need to introduce not one, but two villains, Joseph Stalin and a young gardener named Trofim Lysenko. And that's where we'll pick up in part two of the story of Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov, Plant Hunter. I'm Phil Gibson, and this has been part one of a two-part summertime episode of Biota. I need to acknowledge my two primary sources for this episode. First, The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov by Peter Pringle, and Where Our Food Comes From, Retracing Nikolai Vavilov's Quest to End Famine by Gary Naban. Thanks as always to Terry Gibson for help with episode development. And so once again, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.